0: The National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie
1: Perfect Manny Twenty at all slash perfect twenty. Welcome back to the women's podcast. In this episode, we are talking about the significance and the evolution of friendships.
2: And then the answer just came to me. I'm passionate about friendship. Friendship has been the most consistent love of my life. It has got me through the lowest lows and my friends have been there also to celebrate the highest highs.
1: That was the voice of author and broadcaster Elizabeth Day there. She has written a feckin' brilliant book called Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict. And she is here with us today. Friendship is an endlessly fascinating subject, I think, because we all have a stake in it and we all have our own stories. And I should also say it's a subject that is explored in another great book by senior features writer and award winning Irish Times journalist Rosita Boland. That book is Come reads. And I highly recommend it too. Now, Friendaholic is Elizabeth Day's contribution to this genre, this new genre, friendlit, or maybe it's matelit. I don't know. Call it what you like. She was raised in Belfast and later became an award-winning journalist. In 2018, she launched the podcast How to Fail, which I know many of you love and listen to regularly. She's written five novels. The last one was Magpie and that was a fantastic book. She came on to talk to us about that a while while back. Her latest book, Friendaholic, is a deep dive into friendship. And I'm going to read you a little bit of the blurb. As a society, there is a tendency to elevate romantic love. But what about friendships? Aren't they just as, if not more, important? So why is it hard to find the right words to express what these uniquely complex bonds mean to us? Growing up, Elizabeth wanted to make everyone like her. Lacking friends at school, she grew up to believe that quantity equaled quality. Having lots of friends meant she were loved, popular and safe. She was determined to become a good friend and in many ways she did. But in adulthood, she slowly realised that it was often to the detriment of her own boundaries and mental health. Then, when the pandemic hit in 2020, she was one of many of us who were forced to reassess what friendship really meant to them. And with the crisis came a dawning realization. Her truest friends were not always the ones she'd been spending most time with. Why was this? Could she rebalance it? Was there such a thing as too many friends? And was she really the friend she thought she was? So, the book asks and answers all of these questions. And I really loved my chat with her. We talked about best friends, frenemies ghosting. We talked about both our partners who, um, neither of whom have many friends, which is kind of amazing. Uh, So we had a good chat about that and a laugh as well. And Elizabeth was also very open about her fertility journey, which has been extremely difficult and which also gave her a lot of insight into her friendships. Elizabeth Day is just always a pure delight to speak to. And I began by asking her about the inspiration for this fantastic new book, Friendaholic.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me back because it was one of my favourite conversations about Magpie and I'm not just saying that. So it's lovely to be in your company again, albeit over Zoom. And yeah, you're right. I mentioned that I was working on a book on friendship and the idea came about through the pandemic, essentially. So I remember going on one of those lockdown walks with my agent, Nell, where you were only allowed to meet one other person for one form of daily exercise. And so we were in Vauxhall Park up the road from where I live in Southwest London. It was absolutely freezing. And we sat down at one of those picnic tables and she said, you know, what are you passionate about? What's your next non-fiction book going to be about? And I thought about it. And as I say in the opening to Friendaholic, I'm not someone who has that many hobbies, unless you count watching a load of Real Housewives as a hobby, which some people might. (laughs) And um, I couldn't think of anything instantly other than cats and cheese. And my agent was like, no, you're not going to write about that. Although I think she's missed a trick there because I actually think that would be a good book. Um, And then the answer just came to me. I'm passionate about friendship. Friendship has been the most consistent love of my life. It has got me through the lowest lows. And my friends have been there also to celebrate the highest highs. But I realised that the pandemic, as it did for many of us, made me re-evaluate the state of some of my friendships. Because my diary emptied up overnight, I was able to realise two things. One was how much I missed my closest friends and how much I missed them physically, which surprised me because it's not necessarily that I consider myself someone who has to see my friends all the time, but I actually really missed hugging them and I missed their smell and their perfume and... I really miss them. But when I looked at my diary, I realised that I hadn't been spending enough time with them. I'd actually had my time swallowed up by other obligations, whether it be work obligations or whether it be what I describe as sort of situation friendships, situationships where you fall into a friendship without really having understood that that's what you've agreed to. Those people that you might strike up a conversation with at the school gate or you sit next to at a work function or you meet in yoga class and they're nice and you have a friendly exchange, but then suddenly they seem to want something slightly different from that interaction than you do. And I'd allowed myself to get overwhelmed by those situationships because I was, I thought it was incredibly important to keep meeting other people's demands to be thought of as a good friend. And I thought, well, that can't be right. And I'm interested as to why that is And I'm also interested in why friendship doesn't have a language. It's very difficult to say what we mean when we talk about friendship, because it's such a broad and diffuse term. Mm. And romantic love has been elevated by our society for so many hundreds of years. And we've sort of forgotten about friendship. And I wanted to write a vocabulary of friendship, as well as paying tribute to the precious love that so many of us experience. And that was the starting point. And you absolutely have done that. I have to tell everyone, I'll tell everyone later, I'll gush a bit more
1: at the end about how brilliant the book is because I think it's one of those books that makes you look at your own life, your own friendships, it makes you evaluate things. It's the kind of book um, that I had to stop reading a few times and just put down and have a little think to myself, a little soul search. But let's go uh, back a little bit as to why the book is called Friendaholic, which is a great word that you've invented. I haven't seen yes. it before, so that's always Thank nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's go back a bit to, as to why you were a friend Friendaholic, and someone who really felt that you had to collect a lot of people, or that that would somehow validate you, because you grew up in Belfast. We talked about that before, and you were in boarding school, and you had particularly not very positive experiences where yeah. you were bullied. How do you think that impacted how you went forth into the world in terms of your approach to friendship?
2: I think it was huge, and it was actually only something that I really understood in the writing of Friendaholic. When you do experience bullying and you feel like an outsider, as I already did, because as you can hear, I've got a very English accent. And then to put on top of that, that feeling of not being accepted at a really key age when you're an adolescent and you really want to belong to a tribe, I think... The knock-on effect for me was to believe that there was safety in numbers, that I had to do everything possible in order to fit in and be accepted. And when I changed schools at the age of 13, that was my mission. I lost sight of who I was. I don't know if I ever really knew. And I rushed to try and please as many friends as I possibly could, because I had confused fitting in with belonging, because belonging is actually where you're accepted as you are, but you need to know who you are first. And I was going wrong on both fronts. I was in my rush to fit in. I thought that it was much more important to meet other people's needs rather than my own. And so that cultivated me as an immense people pleaser. And I think when I use that term, I'm very cognizant that it can sound quite nice. It can sound, in fact, quite friendly to be a people pleaser and to think of other people's needs. But I took it to an extreme. And as you say, it's not that I collected people without liking them. I have always loved making connections and um, forging that kind of human moment where you realise you've got something in common. But there were just too many people in my life. And I was spreading myself too thinly. And what that meant was that I actually couldn't nourish the really sustaining core relationships And I didn't really recognize them for what they were until much later.
1: And so when you were writing the book, was it a sort of uh, friendship audit in a way which sounds quite mechanical and businesslike? Mm. But sometimes I've done this in my life where maybe it's time when you have a birthday party or when you have a certain thing going on in your life and you think, who do I really need to be there? Who do I want to be there? And you start. And have you ever done this? I've written a list yeah. of. And it's interesting when you do that to see whose names come to your head first or yes. where you put people. But was the book a bit like doing
2: that? Did you have to kind of dig down into your friendships? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I think I'm a huge advocate now having written the book of checking in with our friendship health in the same way that we're encouraged to check in with our mental health and our physical health. We should check in with our relational health, like how healthy are our relationships. And I definitely think that that was a corollary of writing this book. I didn't set out with that intention. It was much more this is an interesting journey, where will it take me? And it took me so long to work on the structure because of that, because because it is such a diffuse and vast subject and I wanted to do it justice. So I was exploring and discovering as I was going. Um, But I do think there's one very interesting moment that you've just reminded me of, which I write about in the book. So again, going back to kind of pandemic era and in between lockdowns, There was that time in the UK where we were allowed to socialise with up to six people, but it had to be outside. And I remember organizing an evening with six of us. And I and, and I my challenge to myself was: I'm only going to invite the people that I really want to see who I think will be fun. And I didn't allow myself to feel guilt or obligation about the people that I hadn't invited. And I just invited these five friends and some of them had never met each other. And it was honestly one of the best nights of my life. And I did say, can we not put this on social media because I don't want to offend anyone. But that was so interesting to me because that's the equivalent of having written a list. I've never really done that. Maybe I should. But when it came to it and when I dismantled my perception of my friendships from guilt, from obligation, from, oh, no, you know, she's having a bit of a tough time. I should include her. These are the people who I wanted to be around me who turned up for me and we're actually having that same group of people again in a couple of months time I've organized a sort of reunion because it was so special and so magical so that's my equivalent of having written a list (laughs) I hope it's um just good and it's not disappointing maybe there's some of them (laughs) have turned a bit rubbish since then Such an Irish thing to say, and I'm laughing so much. Obviously, one of my fears, yeah. I mean, let's hope. I was like, should I mix it up by inviting some other people? But no, I feel like the six of us, it's too much of a sacred space. I'll let you know how we get on. You do, and I, I hope the other people don't
1: find out. I'd be devastated if I was not in this in the secret six. I'd be I'd be like, oh
2: Elizabeth. Well, luckily I haven't spoken about it on a podcast, so or written about it in a book. It's fine. It's totally secret. Grand, totally secret. Um in the book. I
1: mean, there isn't a lot of research about friendship, let's be yeah. honest, but you did manage to find some good things. And there is a guy, um, I think he says that having four or five good friends is ideal and any yes. more or less can be detrimental, which is really amazing that you can come up with a number. What did you think
2: about that, that four or five? Oh. These are the close friends you drink in the middle of the night or if there's yes. something really badly wrong. Exactly. This I found it really liberating. So this is a man called Robin Dunbar, who's the OG of friendship research. And you're right that there hasn't been that much research because, big surprise, there's been loads more research on romantic relationships. But Robin Dunbar is a professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University. And he initially became quite famous for coming up with something termed Dunbar's number, which is the amount of connections the human brain can cope with, where we know someone's name and we know something about their lives, and we'd probably invite them to a big wedding. And that number was 150. And it was a number that was replicated again and again throughout history. So it's the average size of a medieval village, and it's the average size of a Christmas card list. And he, a few years after that, finessed that theory and came up with Dunbar's layers. And you're right, one of the things that he says is those key relationships, those close, nurturing friendships, They you can cope with up to four to five because they require a lot of time. Because actually, if you're respecting that friendship, you need to put the hours in. And he says that if you... Uh, get married or you have a long-term romantic relationship or you have children, generally that will cost you two of those other friendships, which I thought was fascinating. And I found it liberating because where I'd been going wrong was I'd been treating every single interaction I'd ever had with anyone who seemed to mildly like me as someone worthy of being like a true friend. And trying to put in the hours, and obviously I couldn't do that because there aren't enough hours in the day. But the great thing about Dunbar's layers is that they expand. So there's a wider layer, which will go up to 15 key friendships or relationships. And he says that different friendships perform different functions, and that's okay. And so for me, it was a real light bulb moment. I was like, oh, I've been doing friendship wrong. And actually... How I need to do it is to spend more time with that inner layer.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant, and I do think. I mean, I don't want to be getting people to having to write lists or or do uh, Venn diagrams or anything, but it kind of is useful to maybe yeah. put your four or five in a circle and then do the layers out from there, and and check in occasionally and see how much um, time you're investing in them because life is busy and hard and if we don't put work into our friendships you know they do wither and die that's 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 the thing and one of the most interesting things I thought about the book was your stuff about ghosting which we do associate again with romantic relationships and you know people going you know on dating apps and not being heard of again and all of that but that guy Dunbar, he also talks about um, the fact that friendships replenish and, and fade away, that you kind of... Is it half your friendships kind of go and then are replaced? Or what What, what was the statistic there? Well, now I can't remember,
2: that can I? It doesn't matter, actually? but it's something
1: about... <laughs> but, it's, yeah,
2: yeah there's, um, Danielle Bayard-Jackson, who's a friendship coach from the state, she introduced me to the idea, as we know, we become, all of our cells regenerate every seven years. So it stands to reason that every seven years, we would also... Evolve our friendships, but you're right. There is that statistic about about losing heart. I think it's yeah. I think I it's half. I'll look it's it up. sort of replacing <laughs> half with yes. other another batch comes in, um, and and so
1: part of that is losing friendships and. Sort of, uh, you talk about two things: ghosting, and you also talk about the cut, which are sort of two different things. The cutting yes. out is completely like where someone pretends you don't exist. The yes. ghosting is a little bit gentler, but still quite harsh. Tell us about the big um, ghosting that you experienced with a, with a person you call Becca in the in the um, in the book. Yes.
2: So I should preface this by saying that everyone in the book who is referred to by their real name. Uh, knew that they were in the book. I asked for their permission and they read the sections that I write about them. But there are also people like Becca who I've done a lot of work to anonymize. So I just want to reassure anyone who's, who's read or is reading the book. But Becca was someone that I would have considered one of my inner layer of friends. And she was someone who I had met as an adult who I found terrifically impressive. She was a few years older than me And we met by attending the same spin class. And she was the one who could do all the tap backs and all the dance moves. And she just looked strong and fantastic. And we bonded because we worked in similar industries. And I was going through a tough time in my personal life. And my first marriage was imploding. And she was also having issues in her personal life. And I think that's that's why we bonded so quickly as adults. And my best friend Emma did sound a note of caution. She's like, oh, she've got very close very quickly. <laughs> and I was like, yes, but she's amazing. And, and and truly, Becca was there for me at some of the really tough moments of my life. When my first marriage eventually broke down, she was amazing. And I really looked up to her. And she was a sort of bigger sister figure in my life. And I really admired her style and the way she pierced her ears. And we did a lot of things together. And I asked her if she would go clothes shopping with me and all of that sort of stuff. Fast forward a few years, and I just noticed that she her replies to my texts were becoming less frequent. There was always an excuse why she couldn't meet up. Uh, a cocktail became a coffee, and then that became ever more infrequent. And I then thought, okay, well, I don't I don't want to intrude and maybe she's going through something. So let me give her the space that she needs. And then I walked past her in the street one day and I could see that she had seen me and she totally blanked me and cut me dead. And that happened again a few months later in a cafe where we locked eyes and then just turned away. It was, I've never had anything like that happen. And for me, I experienced it as being so out of the blue and so brutal and I didn't know what to make of it in the, course of writing the Becca chapter and exploring ghosting I now think I have a much better understanding of what went on and actually Becca did it to another friend who I then met up with who said to me she felt suffocated by you so all of the things that I thought were emblematic of our closeness something that we shared she had experienced as someone suffocating her And wanting to copy her and I could see that and I felt regret for it and I also felt regret for the fact that I hadn't asked her or said what's going on because I'm extremely conflict avoidant and I was scared of hearing the truth and by the same token I think Becca was probably pretty conflict avoidant and it was easier for her just to disappear from my life than actually to have an uncomfortable conversation and that's why I have a lot of sympathy for both sides but when you are ghosted in a friendship it was a slow motion grief the likes of which I've never experienced before or since and I was left trying to place my own narrative into that silence and I found that really difficult for a really really long time and it's really interesting to me having written the book and it being published how many people I've met at events or who've messaged me on Instagram saying that they too have been ghosted and I found that really reassuring (laughs) like it made me feel for a long time I thought I must be such an awful person for someone that I really love to have done this to me and now I realise that it's a corollary of the fact that historically friendship hasn't had a language so we also don't have the language for endings. I think that is really one of the big things that i took from your book actually because i suppose i mean as i
1: was reading it there's one point where you talk about um you know somebody who's maybe a serial ghoster who's done it a few times like i don't know if that's what i'd describe myself but say i've had a few friendships that i would say have gone wrong for example have yeah. gone wrong and haven't been right and where the chemistry has not been good and where i felt not not good about myself in the friendship say and the only way I maybe felt I could deal with that was by, what I suppose I didn't have the word for it then, but the word ghosting would probably be it because I didn't know how to, what else to do. I think when romantic relationships break down, by necessity almost, you have to go through some period of, you know, it's aroused or it's talking about it or it's, you know, and the thing breaks down irrevocably, Mm -hmm. but you kind of have, you have a thread that can link to why that happened. But when a friendship goes wrong like that, if, if the communication isn't there, then there isn't anywhere for that to go. And so the only uh, feeling can be maybe from the other side. I'm not saying from Becca, because I, personally, I don't think you needed to be friends with Becca. I don't think she was right
2: for you. That's you're my so lovely. <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I think Emma would agree.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, well, I, of course, I agreed with Emma this first second she said that. I was like, yes, Emma, you are right. <laughs> um, but what I suppose just to finish that, and I'd be interested in what you think is, Is that we need to find a way to be more um, open and direct when things maybe are going wrong in friendships. Like I had an experience recently with a very close friend who rang me up uh, to to sort of basically express something she wasn't happy with about our friendship. Something that Mm -hmm. I had done or not done. It was excruciating, Elizabeth. Like it Mm -hmm. was awful, the conversation. But, you know, it was resolved so quickly. She said what she had to say. I totally agreed with her and understood what she was saying. I, I hadn't done it on purpose, I but I realized, oh, God, that was bad. And I shouldn't have done that. And I really never want to do that again because I really value our friendship. And within like maybe a 10 minute conversation during which I felt so uncomfortable and afterwards for a few hours, I felt really icky having done the thing that I, I she rightly had pointed out. But then I almost feel like we were closer afterwards. Like I have yes. a much more understanding of, you know, I never want to do that again because I'm really realizing how much I value it. Like if I hadn't cared, then it would be a sign that I don't really care about the friendship. But I totally. did really care. And I went, I need to make sure that never happens again. But what, so it's a very long winded way of saying that if you don't have that communication that, or that ability to confront something, then the ghosting is maybe the only yes. way through.
2: There's so much that I want to say and you're completely spot on that I think so much of the language around friendship is moralising. You're a good friend or you're a bad friend and there's very little nuance. And you're right that with romantic relationships, we can contain much more nuance and we have the language, you know, that it's not, you it's me all of that like we and, and we also expect romantic relationships to break up until eventually we might find the person that we want to settle down with we don't have the same expectation of friendship there's an unrealistic expectation that all friendships must last for life or you're a bad friend and that's why I think we can feel defensive if someone calls us on our friendship behavior that they didn't like, and it's so interesting that you say that because I had the same experience while I was writing the book. A friend, a dear friend of mine, called me on something that I had absolutely done wrong, and I didn't put it in the book because it would have been obvious who she was, and so and I and she's too precious to me for that. Um, but I had done something wrong, and she had the bravery to tell me that, and. Exactly like you, I felt closer to her as a result. First of all, I totally acknowledged that I hadn't behaved in the way that I should have done, and I felt so honoured that she had trusted me and that our friendship felt safe enough that she could say that. Yeah, and it, I totally felt closer to her. I feel our friendship is stronger as a result. And I've been experimenting with that clarity of communication the other way. And one of the friendships that I talk about in the opening chapter of Friendaholic is with Ella, who we just grew into different phases of our lives, basically. And during the pandemic, she called me on the fact that I had seemed distant. And in the end, I sent a text saying, I think of you with nothing but love. I'm so grateful for the friendship that we had. And I wish you all the best for the future. I'm just going through my own stuff right now. And I think that that, and she received that really well. So kudos to her. But I think there is a way of expressing how you feel with love as well as clarity. And again, I think we're often sold a lie that if you erect a boundary, it's got to be very cut and dried and very mechanical. And it's all about you and what your needs are. Actually, there are ways of expressing things with love that are also clear. That's been one of my biggest realisations. But it's really scary. And so the ghosting thing... And the fact that you have felt energetically sometimes that you don't want to. Energetically, that's the word, yeah. I totally get it and that you don't want to be in that scenario, but there's nothing that anyone's done wrong, but it doesn't feel quite right. I I am a believer in the non-verbal boundary. And what I mean by that is the gradual distancing, perhaps slightly less frequent comms, texting instead of phone calls, a, a sort of gradual process where, if we're honest, it's probably clear to both of us what is happening. And the di- and that's okay because it can be so complicated and it can be cruel to explain, sorry, you know, energetically, you just don't fit with me. And you don't want to hurt the other person, but that's different from ghosting where you drop out of someone's life like that and there's nothing. And so I think that there are I'm not sure that you are a serial ghoster is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I
1: think now that I'm... And actually, that's what I kind of conclusion I came to after reading your, your uh, book that I... Yeah, there's different levers of it. And I'm glad you, you yeah. pointed that out. Uh, sometimes it's about self-protection as well. And it's not about hurting anybody or being mean or rude or... yeah. Whereas I think ghosting and cutting is kind of cruel and I think what Becca did and I think what Becca did to you was very much all her own stuff and I know it's easy for me to sit there saying to you like Elizabeth it's not you it's Becca but I really I think she couldn't handle your friendship and she was I think she was a bit jealous of you and I think she saw you when you met her and your life was a bit not in a good place, that was a better friendship for her. And like you say in the book, when your your star started to ascend and when your life started to come together in a better way, she didn't see that as, as a friendship she wanted to cultivate anymore.
2: Yeah, I think that there are friendships that can stretch to accommodate changes in circumstance and some that can't for whatever reason. And it's up to all of us to work out how far we're willing stretch that's not my concept by the way that's Aminatu so and Anne Friedman's concept (laughs) in their brilliant book Big Friendship the concept of friendship stretching and sometimes if you have forged a friendship through shared sadness and then one person stops being as sad that can be really difficult for the other person because it throws into relief their continuing sadness so I, I definitely think that had a part to play. Mm. Before we move on to some of the uh, beautiful and enriching friendships
1: in your life which you, you talk about so brilliantly in the book I just want to do another little bit of a less positive one was the Frenemies chapter I found fascinating yeah. too. Um, There's a person in it which I'm sure you've anonymized as you described very much called Ali who you would describe as, as a frenemy who was, who was kind of instead of lifting you up was kind of <laughs> prone to putting you down <laughs> pretending he'd read your books when he hadn't uh, you know clearly not really having much interest in your books, even at your book launch and stuff like yeah. that. And and there, we, all, I think we all know those kind of people in our lives. And there's an interesting thing of how, why do we keep those people yeah. around? Tell us about Ali and tell us about the conclusion you came to uh, around yeah. Frenemies.
2: Yeah. So Ali is someone, as you were talking about him, I just felt this wave of fondness. <laughs> so <laughs> hilarious because he's also capable of great acts of generosity. It's just that you never quite know what you're going to get either you're going to get sent an orchid out of the blue as I once was, or you're going to get him saying, Oh yeah, I read your book in the bath in one sitting. Like, and then, you know, throw it in the bin like, or, um, just the slightly, it's, it's a very difficult thing to delineate because, uh, the passive aggression is, is, is so stellar in its execution that you can't quite put your finger on it, but you just feel like you've just been jabbed. You're like, Oh, I didn't, that felt a bit prickly. And, um, they are called, in scientific terms, ambivalent friends. And so it's that idea that you are never sure of how they're going to receive you or what they're going to say or how they're going to treat you. And again, to bring in some research, there's been a fascinating study done by the University of Utah where they um, hooked people up to blood pressures and they monitored them during a couple of weeks. And if those people had interactions with others who they loved – blood pressure was great. If they had interactions with people they actively disliked or hated, blood pressure, unaffected. But if they had an interaction with an ambivalent friend, someone where they didn't know what they were going to get, there was a blood pressure spike. And it's because we're having to do a lot of the emotional labor in terms of like holding ourselves together. And so Ali for me was uh, symbolic of that kind of friendship. And the conclusion I came to with him was not okay, I need to find a way to manage this friendship out of my life. And I I don't think energetically it's good for us because actually he's also accompanied me on moments of great joy and I enjoy the good bits. And I do think that there's a way that you can choose to focus your energetic attention on the good bits that someone provides and just not taking on the negative. And that's sort of what I tried to do with Ali. And I had a conversation with my husband, Justin, about it once. And he said this thing, he was like, okay, either you can continue the friendship as it is and it will cause you stress, um, or you can end it and that will cause you stress, or you can think of it as an act of charitable service. Um, and <laughs> what I, I I was I was a bit uncomfortable with that phraseology because I don't want to think of myself as a sort of lady bountiful dispensing friendship tokens from up <laughs> on my high horse. But what he meant was actually you could concentrate on the good that it brings someone else's life and the good that it brings yours and that's how I've categorized that friendship and it's really really helped let's go on to
1: some of your lovely friends because uh, and then you used their real names and you showed them the piece so yes. it's, it's all good it's all about um, board <laughs> all about board and everything so I'm going to maybe pronounce this. satnam is that yes, how yes nailed it yeah so very good first time excellent Um, Satnam was someone you were set up on a date with which is fascinating and I love your chapter about male friendships because I have uh, a few very very close um, male friends and I I don't understand why you can't or why it doesn't work, but I but I you do go into a lot of the reasons it doesn't work, maybe in yeah. in your in your chapter about Saturn. But you were supposed to be having a rom- romantic entanglement. <laughs> you both decided the very first night almost that neither of you wanted that, and a beautiful friendship uh, came out of it. So tell tell me what you've sort of learned about uh, the Harry and Sally sort of male female friendship. Yeah,
2: thing. well, a bit like you, I've just never seen it as an issue, I, and I find it strange and I think in a way I'm so grateful that we live in a world now that is so much more fluid with regards to gender and what it means and I think when Harry Met Sally although it's the greatest rom-com of all time obviously it was made in a different era where these things were so much more binary and I don't feel that my male friendships I I don't feel sex has ever gotten in the way, but Satnam's point was, so he's friends with quite a few of his long-term exes, and he said, I think you can do it, but you need to have the sex part out of the way, either you need to have had sex or you need to have discussed it, and I was like, okay, well that's interesting, and then I looked at my male friendships, and I've got um, Satnam, Ross, Simon, and I've never felt sexually about any of them. Simon's gay. Ross is married to an amazing woman who is also a dear friend of mine. And Satnam, we had that first date where we rapidly established nothing was going to happen. But I do stay in touch with some of my exes, which Justin, my husband, finds completely unfathomable. He just doesn't get it. <laughs> and I really had to drill down. I was like, why am I still friends with them? And actually what I realized was I was only friends with the unserious ones, the ones that I'd had a brief fling with. And I felt like with those ones, I'd made a category error. And actually they were only ever going to be friends, but I'd let the sex part get in the way right then and there. I I don't think it's healthy for me to be friends with long-term exes because your, I think my personality type is very much like, I just, I think I would always feel less than if I tried to pursue a friendship with them when they're dating other people. So that's the conclusion that I came to about it is that um, gender doesn't matter unless you let it. Mm. And the other thing that I looked at in that chapter was male friendships. So friendships between men. And if you are a Cis straight male, the chances are the research has showed that you hemorrhage friendships in your 30s and 40s because a lot of you are settling down and having kids. And no one's quite sure why that is. And it's hard to examine why that is without falling into sort of stereotype. But there is a sense that potentially women find it easier to make those small daily interactions that might lead to a friendship and men if they're in a conventional heterosexual relationship don't feel that they have to make the effort and also that men predicate a lot of their friendships on shared interests so um i'm just just sort of woodwork which is like another massive stereotype <laughs> i don't know any men who bond over woodwork but like rugby going to the rugby clubs together or whatever and when their life gets busier the shared interest collapses and there's this really great movement called the men shed movement that started in australia And uh, the founder, Ray Winder, realized that this was an issue. And so he set up a sort of weekly event in a shed where men could come and do something in a shared space and bond that way. So that was really interesting to me as well, the Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you, um, you, you mentioned that your husband doesn't have um that many friends, <laughs> yes. right? And my partner now, this is going to sound awful. And even as I'm saying it out loud, it's going to make him sound like some kind of weirdo. But he doesn't really have any friends, right? Yeah. Now he has friends that are, well, I, I he doesn't have any friends. He has, some of my friends really love him and like him and he really likes them. So they've become kind of mm. friends, but he's not, the he just doesn't seem to to need it. Is that, do you think that's yeah. weird?
2: Yes. it's (laughs) But no, I don't now, but it's exactly the same as Justin. Exactly the same. And I, it's taken me a really long time to, I can understand, I can technically understand what he's saying. I just do find it so different from how I am. And I find it fascinating because I think we've taught each other a lot. Like he's taught me a lot about self-sufficiency and the enlightenment of that, of, of actually not needing to outsource your sense of self to other people. That's, that's an amazing thing. And, you know, he's someone who has a very fulfilled life. He's got three kids, he runs his own business and he's got me. And so that's what focuses his attention. And he doesn't exactly like your partner just doesn't feel that he needs it. And actually it's really interesting because I think knowing that about himself has meant that he hasn't set up unrealistic expectations of the people who come into his life. So he does, like he has, <laughs> one, or, he has one or two friends. and nah, yeah. I, I think that's genuinely because since he's been with me, he's realized that friendship is actually quite nice. Yeah. Um, but he sets up a very realistic expectation where he will hardly ever get back to texts. He's not going to be the one who arranges anything. Oh. Is that the same? Yeah, very whereas similar. I'm sure that yeah. you and I are like. the Maybe ones Justin who are like, and Johnny could yes, be friends. Like, the,
1: the two. They, J's. No, they wouldn't they wouldn't need to. They would just they don't they'd need to be like, to. no, Justin, you're grand. I, I don't need anybody. Yeah. And Justin would be like, no, Johnny, it's fine. Don't worry. Don't mind them. <laughs> yeah, whereas
2: <laughs> I like, I like catch myself just feeling so stressed because like I have to arrange this dinner and get in touch with this person. Justin's just like, just don't do it. Just I'm like, no. <laughs> what (laughs) and I did I recorded an episode of my podcast how to fail where I interviewed Justin and one of his failures because of everything we talked about was friendship and and some of the listeners who listened to that like it was so funny because I still couldn't get my head around it and I was like do you think that it's guided by the fact that you've made your peace with death and he was like no I don't think it's that and he would just shot down every single attempt at explanation on my part well when I met Johnny he had a really
1: special friend um called David and he was a few years younger than him and he'd known him since uh, pretty much since childhood anyway it was a couple of years into our relationship when actually David um died sadly he he had an yeah he had an epileptic fit and died and um that was his big He had a big friendship, like I'd say a friendship that was going to be into his, you know, would would have been around now, probably would have had this this one friend. Mm -hmm. Then that friend died. And Johnny didn't have um, a sense of needing to or wanting to replace David, say, you know, and like a sense. I think there was a sense, well, I'm not going to meet someone like him or in the same context or so there's no point. So I don't know if it's something around that as well. Like I don't haven't really spoken to him that much about maybe the impact of that in terms of his friendships. But it's kind of like he had a friend. He really appreciated that friendship. The friendship was lost and then it's like, oh, that was my that was my friendship. You know, it's, Wow, uh,
2: that's so beautiful and so um, sad. And yeah, it's making me sad now thinking oh, about it. But David Boyd yeah. was a lovely, he was a lovely
1: person. And I really loved their friendship because it was they were very different people. You know, they were very different people. Johnny's quite quiet and introverted. David was more outgoing and stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's interesting like that, isn't it? Whereas some people might think, right, I need to go and get a load more friends. I think Johnny was just happy with the fact that he had that friend. And OK, the, friend wow. was, the friendship was gone. But um, oh, gone I is, wish yeah, I I wish darker. I'd,
2: no, I wish I'd spoken to him <laughs> for Friendaholic, not that he would have wanted to. For but Friendaholic that's so, part
1: two, you can. Yes, but
2: add paperback material, I'll be back yeah. in touch. I mean,
1: another thing not to get too sad, because there is sad parts in your book as well, but I was also thinking a lot about my friend Ashling, who's died um, a few years ago, and your friend Joan, which is a friendship I wanted to, to talk to you about, because what's great about the book as well as a really, and I, something I find really important in my life is friendships of different ages. I have friendship friends that are much younger than me who I really value because they tell me things that I otherwise wouldn't have a clue about. And I have friends who are much older than me, too. And again, for obvious reasons, those friendships are very important because there's just life experience. Uh, so I'm I'm that older friend to some people and I have older friends who are, are, are that for me. But Joan is a woman you met when you went to LA and things weren't good in your life at the time. And she's a bit older than you, maybe 15 years older than yeah, you. Yeah, she's it? about 20 years
2: older than me. Although okay. you wouldn't know it because she's got amazing <laughs> skin. And I keep asking her why. Um, But I just want to touch, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah. And I also just wanted to say that there is a, a part in Friendaholic about friendships ending and friends dying and one of the things that is so difficult is that just as there are no social rituals for marking how important friendship is in life so there are no social rituals in death and I wanted to explore that and actually one of my closest friends her best friend Camilla died uh when she was in her early 30s and she did me the great honor Alice of talking to me about it so I just wanted to say that if any listener is affected by that, there yeah. is a portion of the book that's devoted to it,
1: and also Joan talks about that too. That's why yes. I mentioned her because Sorry, she has, you were doing a seamless she, link, and I interrupted. No, no, <laughs> it wasn't that seamless. It was a bit rambling what I was saying, but but Joan, I thought it kind of that's where I started thinking about Ashley as well because she would said that um, when she thinks about her friends that that have died, that she sort of wants to live her best life mm-hmm. almost for them. Like she said a lovely thing, and and, and something I've thought about as well. It's like when I think about Ashley, I think, oh, she'd be really, she'd love that I'm doing this or she'd be
2: happy for me, you know, that way. And so you keep them alive in that way too. Yes, that's so profoundly important. And Joan is someone who I value for her innate wisdom and also her lived experience. So she's 20 years older than I am. And as you alluded to, I met her at a really difficult time in my life when I, my first marriage had ended and I had started unsuccessful fertility treatment and I'd had the first of three miscarriages. And when I met Joan and I turned up on her doorstep in a dark March evening in West Hollywood, the whole story of how that came about is in Friendaholic. Um, she just took me in and she showed me a different way of being. And she was someone who had also been through her own unsuccessful fertility treatment some years earlier and had got through the other side and was living this really fulfilled life with her lovely husband, Michael. And that was so helpful to me and always has been. She has been a real guiding light for me and a a sort of sister-like figure who I feel so supported by, but also so seen by. And I really value the fact that she has that experience and can talk me through the hinges of my personal history in the same way that she has an older friend in his 90s called Max, who talks her the hinges of actual history. So he was the person that she called when Donald Trump was elected. And he was able to offer her the reassurance of having lived through a lot of stuff himself. And I'm I'm like you, I have friends of different ages, and I really value my younger friends, because I do think that one of the key components to living a fulfilled life is to stay engaged with it, to stay engaged with the things that are happening and the newness as well as understanding where we've come from. I think that that's really important. Yeah, um, You touched on
1: it there. You, I know you don't like the word journey, fragility journey. I know, but there's no better one. <laughs> we, we, no, we have to just use it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there's in very, your chapter on that is very interesting. Different people's reactions. Um, mm. To that, to the fact that, you know, you had so much pain and trauma indeed around miscarriage and, and that fertility journey. Um, and that, you know, you talk about some friends who were so sensitive to it. And it was gorgeous to read that, how people really understood how like your friend, um, your friend Charmaine, yeah. sort of the way she told you about her pregnancy yeah. with twins she told you before loads of other people she was really yeah. respectful that was gorgeous but there was other friends who were just inviting you to all these toddler picnics and not really having any almost like yeah. ignoring it completely the fact that there yeah. was a thing so you do. it's two extremes for anybody going through that maybe themselves I thought it'd be interesting just if you could talk a little bit about what do you need from people when you're, mm. you're going through that because I think I genuinely think some people just find it really hard they don't know what to do and so they just yeah they just press the button that says I'll just pretend it's not going on I
2: yes. don't know It is really hard. And just as there's not much language around friendship, there's not much language around fertility. So I completely appreciate how hard it is people. And I also appreciate how involving it is being a parent, especially of a baby, that you absolutely, some things have to be sacrificed. And it's not that I expected every single friend in my circle always to put my needs at the forefront. Absolutely not. But it did delineate the ones who really understood me and made space for me and those who for whatever reason couldn't and actually that's appropriate and that's as it should be and I forged new friendships and I lost some during my own fertility journey and if you're going through it right now and you relate to any of this if you're on one side of it where you don't know what to say to your friend who's struggling I want to preface all of this by saying you're not going to make it worse by raising it as an issue, as a topic of conversation. The friend who's going through it already knows and is already coping with pain, with loss, with incipient grief. You are not going to make that worse. It's already present. And sometimes actually the most powerful things can be the easiest things to say. I'm so sorry is a complete sentence. So much is carried within that. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. It must be really hard for you. Tell me, if I can do something, is all you need to say. And if even that is too hard to say, then one of the things that was very meaningful for me was when I would meet up with friends, and Emma was amazing at this, and they had their kids, but they would always make some kind of space for me and for our friendship within that. Whether it was just a five-minute chat on the kitchen counter with a cup of tea, where Emma said, now tell me about you, because actually, this is really important for me too. And so she always made space for our friendship. I don't want to say separate from her children. It was integrated into her family life. And that was so powerful for me. And I love and adore her children as if they're my own. And that's because I've always felt really a, like a valued member of that family. Mm. And she also turns to me for parenting advice. And that's something else really nice that you can do because obviously I don't have children of my own, but I've thought about it a lot (laughs) and I've also heard about it a lot and actually Emma's so respectful of the fact that I might have some interesting insight so that's what I'd say and if you're on the other side of it and you're going through this fertility battle all I can say is that I see you and you're not alone and I understand a bit of your pain and a bit of your loss And I'm here to tell you that I hope it works out for you. And if it doesn't work out the way that you had imagined for yourself, there is also a great deal of peace and fulfillment and solidarity on the other side.
1: That's beautiful. And I have to ask how you are with all of that now as well, seeing as you said that, even though we're not yeah. friends, you know, but oh, how are but you? can
2: we be? <laughs> like, like, here I am. It's my, it's my addiction. No, I'm exactly. getting an adrenaline buzz. No, no, you can't just <laughs> be like, don't be trying to make friends with that podcast. Woman he that's Dumpen. so
1: funny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. I read gosh. about him in the book. But oh, go on. How so are funny. you about all of that um, now? You're very kind to ask. Do you know what? I actually feel really at peace with it. And I didn't think that I would be able to say that to you now in May 2023, because I went through unsuccessful fertility treatment again at the beginning of the year. And that was something that had been a long time in the planning. It was, uh, we carried a lot of hope for it. And that was really devastating and a very dark point. And I felt that in order to process it, it would be many, many years before I really could. And actually, I feel Hmm. a few things happen that I can go into when we have that point in Dublin. But (laughs) um, I actually feel it's so nice not to be doing fertility treatment right now. (laughs) And I feel that I've spent 12 years in this battle and I want to hang up my armour. And actually having let go of the idea has made me feel... So much more aligned with myself and has made me feel peace. And I think that that's a really important thing for me to take note of. So at the moment, I'm okay. And I have to say that the publication of Friendaholic has really helped because so many people have got in touch with me over that particular chapter on fertility that I feel really seen and purposeful. And I think if your life has some kind of purpose, then you can withstand loss and grief. And so that's where I'm at with it at the moment.
1: Well, I am so glad to hear that. But also you you just speak so beautifully. And I know that will help a lot of people who are listening as well. And I'm really glad you're there. like, I really, I want to reach through the screen and give you... A sort of pretend friend, or I don't know, half Thank friend. <laughs> so no, <kind> of. <laughs> I'm I'm naming it. I'm calling it. I feel like we're friends. <laughs> okay, okay, um, that's good. I promise I won't stalk you and start trying to meet up with you every time I'm in London or anything. I might actually. Thank um, you. <laughs> listen, we're coming to the end. We haven't yeah. spoken about so many people. I just want to mention a couple of the things. Yeah. Clemmy, I found that chapter so moving. Your amazing friend, who just sounds like an extraordinary person, who yeah. then had a brain injury and had to see how many friends just disappeared and yes. didn't weren't there for her and who, who remained. And that was such a powerful um, chapter. I'm so glad you included it because it really it Thank was you. it was very affecting. And um, also your chapter about your best friend, Emma, she seems like a, a fantastic person I'm, mm-hmm. and it's it's just was wonderful to read. But what I want to ask you at the end of our conversation is what you learned. There is a chapter says, that says what I've learned about friendship. So what would you um, say that are the top things you've learned?
2: I think one of the most important things for me is identifying my own metric of friendship. And I encourage anyone to do this. It's to work out the the key, most crucial thing that you think is important in a good, true, sustaining friendship. And for me, that is generosity of spirit. So it's not regular phone calls. It's not having to meet up for dinner every month. It's about always thinking the best of each other and knowing that your friend is doing that actively that that's their default and what that means and what that is offered that's offered to me by the friends that you've mentioned who are in the book what that means is that when we do meet up or we do have a phone call we can hit that relational depth very quickly and i value that above all else and a shared sense of humor that's also really helpful um That's very important. And then the other thing I think is important is that I realized I've been doing friendship wrong and I've been doing a disservice to my truest friends by trying to spread myself too thinly and being a friend to to everyone. And being discerning in your friendships does not make you a bad person. It actually makes you a better friend to the ones who really, really count. So I think those are the two key things.
1: Yeah, um, I I really relate to your spreading yourself too thinly you thing. I have a friend who slags me because I'm always setting setting up these WhatsApp groups with people I just meet, like into people. <laughs> yes, hit
0: me, I have yeah. Like-
1: <laughs> or four WhatsApp groups and they're called wherever the place was I met them and and it's like there's a flurry of messages and then it's just dead I don't know what I'm doing like I was on a train with him once and there was two old women knitting across from me and I started talking to them and he was sitting beside me he texted me from beside me just went if you set up a WhatsApp group
2: with those women oh but I have to say like that's such a lovely quality because you're so interested in people and you connect you have the gift for connection and that's something that's hugely important for me as well and I never want to lose that we should never lose it no we should never lose it but I think it's the sustainability like that's the more realistic and you (laughs) and what I want to say to you Rasheen is obviously we're firm friends now but obviously you are enough like you don't need endless endless friends to show that you're enough. you are and I think that's another thing actually that I want people to take from reading friendaholic is how to be a better friend to yourself first Oh, that's a great way
1: to end it. There's so much more in this brilliant book and I really, I'll be telling everyone about it and um, I think, the great thing is I think men can read it too. I don't think it's just yes. a book for women. Thank I think There's you. so much in it about uh, male friendships and uh, the platonic friendship between men and women is so important. There's just, You've covered it all Like it's really Really great As another hit For you I think Thank you And just you. before you go Then what else Are you up to at the moment Because you're always Very busy doing things So what's going I on
2: I am So I'm, I've just started Writing a novel Ooh. So I'm doing a novel next and I'm at that stage of like, is this the worst thing ever written or should oh, I continue? Like, <laughs> uh, I <laughs>
1: yeah, just interviewed Nisha Dolan, actually, who <gasps> has you? an amazing, oh, her book is, her new book is fantastic. I've got proof of it. Okay. Yes. It's so good. But she was saying like, she was under pressure to write her second book. She wrote three, she wrote two ones she just didn't like. And then she wrote this one and this one is it's brilliant I mean I, I believe that the other two I bet they're brilliant too she says no she said I'll show you my laptop they're not good they're never going to see the light of day so
2: if that's any help I don't know um, it's really helpful but when yeah. she dies there'll be someone who fishes those novels out and then they will publish them and it'll be like Harper <laughs> Lee all over again anyway um, I can't wait to read any one so <clears> I'm writing <throat> a new novel and um recording podcasts uh, so a new season of How to Fail has just started and that keeps me busy. Yeah, brilliant. Well,
1: Friendaholic is just wonderful. I hope all your friends really like
2: it too and it's made you even better friends. I'm sure it has. Did they like it? Yes, actually. Well, yeah, they've been lovely about it. They really have. It's And actually, I think it has been so meaningful for our friendships because I got to sit down and interview them about what friendship meant to them and what our friendship was. And that was really revealing. So, yes, I feel like we've become even closer. Right,
1: well I feel like we've become very much closer as well, Elizabeth. So when I'm in London or you're in Dublin, right, we're going to have to go for a pint. It's a and, deal. And cement this friendship. And don't listen to Justin if he tells you
2: not to meet I, me. well, And don't you listen to Johnny either. We know don't what we're doing. That.
1: He likes me bringing people in. He doesn't have to yes. do any texting or meeting up. He just gets the benefit of these people and then he doesn't have to do anything. It's kind of, Actually, when I think about it, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty kind smart. of handy. Very yeah. smart. Okay, yeah. it was lovely to talk to you again. Thank, Thank you too. so much. Mind Thank yourself. You. That was Elizabeth Day there. And I have to admit at the end of our chat, I actually asked Elizabeth for her phone number and I'm going to WhatsApp her and try and meet up with her next time I'm in London or she's in Dublin. So just light a candle for me really that that friendship uh, works out and I don't get ghosted. Uh, that would be very embarrassing. Elizabeth's book is Friendaholic and honestly, it's just a great read. It really gets you thinking and like she says, hopefully you could end up becoming an even better friend, not just to your friends, but to yourself. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and me with JJ Vernon on sound. You can find us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time.
0: The National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie